listening to the Futures Podcast with me, Luke Robert Mason. On this episode, I speak to biological anthropologist and broadcaster, Professor Alice Roberts. The genetic information is incredibly useful. It adds something to the interpretation, but it doesn't stand on its own two feet and it has to join in with archaeological analysis to show us the bigger picture. Alice shared her insights on how sequencing ancient DNA can provide new evidence to help us to understand our ancestors, what the latest archaeological discoveries reveal about the origins of Homo sapiens, and how an appreciation of deep history can help us navigate the future. Alice, your work explores how archaeology and genetics can reveal the deep history of Homo sapiens. So how has the ability to sequence ancient DNA transformed the field of archaeology? It's transforming it in ways we couldn't have anticipated, actually. It's it's quite a revolution. Uh I think it's as big a revolution as the radiocarbon dating revolution in the mid-20th century, where suddenly we had the ability to obtain absolute dates where previously dating had really been about relative dates you know Mm. something was buried underneath something else and therefore it must be earlier that kind of thing and then using styles to try to date across different sites and then of course with radiocarbon dating you suddenly had that ability to pin a date on something organic Mm. and what we've got with genetics is a way of looking at relationships between people so we can obviously tell if people are related to each other um, by sequencing their dna we can also look at a kind of population level and we can learn something about population movements and migrations in the past. And I think that's where the really profound contribution to archaeology is coming, that there are questions that archaeologists have thought about and debated for decades, if not centuries, that actually they haven't been able to solve at all until genetics came along. So it's it's really exciting. Well, well, some of those big questions, those big understandings are what I want to talk about on this episode, because it feels like archaeogenomics, as it's commonly known, is impacting our understanding, not of just familial ties and of history, but of the origins of the human species uh, more generally. So what new depth and, and what complexity does this biological approach to history provide us? It provides us with a completely different way of of looking at human history and prehistory, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And certainly when you talk about the origins of the species, if we look at how we tried to understand that before any genetics came along Hmm. to help, then really you're looking at fossil evidence and also archaeological evidence as well. So evidence of, uh, of ancient material culture and looking at how humans behaved in the past and trying to find signs of advances, I suppose, we could call it that, in behaviour, which might be linked to the emergence of something like the modern human brain, for instance. Mm -hmm. And then as far as the fossils are concerned, then that's all anatomy. So it's about looking at the differences in the bony structure between humans and our closest living relatives, chimpanzees, as a kind of comparison, and then looking back at the fossil record and seeing how we have a group of particular hominids who start to evolve in a direction which includes walking habitually on two legs, for instance, reduced dentition, so teeth getting smaller and enlarged brain size. And so we see that in the fossil record. And then the contribution of genetics is that you can look, for instance, at the splits between us and our closest living relatives, chimpanzees. So we can look at the the genomes of chimpanzees, we can look at the genomes of homo sapiens, of modern living people, and we can look at the differences between those genomes and then ask how long those differences have taken to accumulate. And then that takes us back to the time of the split between us and our closest living relatives. Um, so it can be used, yeah, it can be used in that way as well in paleoanthropology. Well, have there been any surprising findings from using this method to look at history? Has it actually challenged any of the history we thought we previously understood? Yeah. And also, as I said, it's it's allowed us to actually answer questions that were unanswerable. Mm-hmm. So there were questions particularly about ancient migrations that were endlessly debated, but really you couldn't resolve those until you had genetic evidence to provide the solution. Because we have periods in the past where we see new cultures arriving in particular places. And when a new culture arrives in a place, the question is, well, you know, how many people are bringing that culture? There have to be some people involved because there's no remote communication. So you at least have to have a few people involved in those transmissions of cultural ideas. But you never really knew whether it was just a few people or whether it was a population replacement, for instance. So taking an example from my book, Ancestors, the Bronze Age has been completely 
kind of overturned by <laughs> genetics coming along and saying, actually, the arrival of the beaker culture in Britain uh, was a significant arrival of people into this land. So we can see that there was a 90% population replacement over a few centuries. And that's really exciting. It then puts the ball back in the archaeologist's court and now they have to try and work out how that transition happened over those centuries, just how abrupt and dramatic it, it was, or perhaps it was much more gradual and, and it was just a case of you know more and more families pitching up in Britain over those hmm. few centuries. So yeah, they're really interesting big stories coming out now. Well, it certainly seems like there's these these grand and, and large narratives that we can ascertain from doing archaeology in this way. But do you find there's any pushback? I mean, we're the Futures podcast. We look at the future. And when I think of history, I think stuffy academics doing history and archaeology. And Don't we have know. a very traditional <laughs> way of doing things. And we're traditional historians here. Do they find this approach or this new approach threatening to things like the way history has been done traditionally or the way archaeology has been done traditionally? or is it being welcomed with open arms or are you finding there's still competing evidences for how we understand history? I think a lot of archaeologists are welcoming this new technology with open arms Uh but there are some people who are kind of concerned about maybe reading too much into it or maybe keeping a few hypotheses going rather than plumping for one. Hmm. I think that particularly that Bronze Age revelation did set the cast among the pigeons. There's a little bit of tension, but I don't want to overplay it because I think most archaeologists are really, really excited about archaeogenomics. There will be a few people, of course, who are worried that it's going to overturn their particular pet theories. Hmm. But, you know, it's science. So you have to you have to be prepared in science for that to happen. I think in some cases it's been a bit of a clash of cultures. What's interesting, I think, is that the archaeologists and the geneticists are very often using quite different jargon and terminology. So there's a potential there for misunderstanding. And I'm working with an archaeologist and a geneticist at the moment, Tom Booth in the Crick Institute in London, Mm -hmm. and then with a philosopher colleague at the University of Birmingham as well, Henry Taylor. And we're just looking into that because I think there's a real possibility for just words to be misunderstood and and to create misunderstanding uh, between archaeologists and geneticists and misunderstanding that just doesn't need to be there. So, I mean, that's quite interesting, those two disciplines, because they are, you know, they are two completely different disciplines or they were two completely different disciplines that are coming together with their own backgrounds, their own way of looking at the world and their own terminology. So I do think that they need to get better at understanding each other. Do you have any examples of those misunderstandings and how they're causing conflict in our understanding of history? Well, the word migration is a big one because the word migration, I think, very often is taken to mean a bulk movement of people over a very short period of time in the way that we would use it to describe migrations in the modern world Mm -hmm. that are, you know, political or or economic. And I think a lot of archaeologists will just, you know, will read that term and that will be their perception of what a migration is. Whereas actually what the geneticists mean, all the geneticists mean is that somebody has moved from where they grew up to another place where eventually we find their remains and sequence their bones. (laughs) And then if you've got enough people doing that, that amounts to a migration. It's a nuance, but it's really important because it doesn't necessarily mean those kind of mass migrations that we see in the modern world. It could be something much more subtle that happens over a longer period of time. So it is a, it, it is very different. It's, it's more of a growth of a population as opposed to a, a resettling of an entire population. The idea that we all emerged out of Africa suggests that we left Africa and, and no one was left when, when that happened. Yeah, so yeah, that's really difficult as well. You know, we talk about out of Africa, uh-huh. which is the name given to the theory which best fits the evidence at the moment, that human species emerges in Africa some 300,000 years ago and then expands out of Africa and it's OOA, out of Africa. Mm-hmm. And you think... Actually, a lot of <laughs> a lot of people still stayed there. in Africa, yeah. <laughs> as you say. And then we use all sorts of language to talk about those ancient migrations, which isn't necessarily helpful either. And quite often, borrow biblical language, which I always think is quite curious. And um, we're, we're so far away from using the the Bible as a kind of historical text for these very ancient um, migrations. But using the word Exodus, for instance, mm. also brings to mind a whole group of people just upping sticks and moving, yeah. rather than a population 
expanding into new territory. So, so what are some of the processes behind using genetics to do historical work? Of course, when I think of genetic testing, I think, well, you spit in a tube or someone takes a little bit of your blood. But when it comes to working with burials and the sorts of burials that you cover in your new book, Ancestors, I mean, there's not usually much saliva or blood left behind, is there? No, there's not. And I should say, if you're going to ask me details about processes, I'm not a geneticist. <laughs> okay. You should ask um, Pontus Skagland um, uh-huh. or Tom Booth in the Crick. But I've hung out with them long enough to hopefully give you a bit of an answer here. Yeah. So, and, and also, I can certainly tell you how I would work with them. So they are, first of all, sampling bones. Mm-hmm. So then it's a question of finding the bit of the skeleton, which is the best bit, which you, you think is probably the best bit in terms of the preservation of DNA, because DNA is a relatively fragile molecule. Yeah. So you want to go for a bit of bone where you, you think it has the best chance of surviving. And one of the bits of bone that has turned out to be very good in that way is the petrous temporal bone. Mm. So this is the bone on the side of your skull, but also it projects underneath into the skull base as well, the temporal bone. And the petrous temporal bone is called petrous because it's very, very hard and dense. It's like a stone. It means it's the stony bone. And because it's so hard and dense, um, that seems to mean that DNA is preserved much better in that bone than elsewhere in the skull or the rest of the skeleton. But what the team at the Crick Institute, who who are doing this fantastic Thousand Ancient Genomes project, which I'm involved with, have been finding, is that they're also able to get very good DNA from the ossicles inside the ear. So the little tiny auditory ossicles, Mm. the little chain, uh, the incus, the malleus, the stapes in the ear, which connect your eardrum to the cochlea and are part of the mechanism of hearing. Those three little bones are very often still there inside archaeological skulls and they're completely separate from the skull. They're not kind of attached to the skull. So if they're there, sometimes they'll just fall out actually when you move a skull and they would just fall out of the ear hole, the auditory meatus. And those bones are proving to be really good as well for preserved DNA. So the first thing to do is to get your sample and then it's a question of extracting the DNA and kind of combing through it. A lot of that DNA will be DNA of various bacteria Mm. and not human at all. Uh, So you've kind of got to comb through it and find the human DNA. Although actually there are people that are looking at the bugs as well. In Pontus Gagelin's lab, um, there's a PhD student, Pooja Swali, who is specifically looking at the Hmm. bacteria and the viruses that she finds within that DNA sample so that she can track ancient diseases through time, which is another whole area of study that archaeogenomics opens up. They are in the business now of sequencing entire genomes, which is really exciting. When ancient DNA technology first started providing some information which was useful to archaeologists, it would often be very tiny bits of DNA that the geneticists were focused on looking at. So for Mm. instance, mitochondrial DNA, which is contained in very tiny packages in your cells, um, or sometimes just particular parts of the Y chromosome if we were looking at males interested in tracing male lineages. But what they are doing now is sequencing entire human genomes. So that means that this is then very powerful in terms of spotting those differences and similarities, which are really important to looking at how related individuals are to each other, to spotting those population movements, and sometimes even to reconstructing the appearance of our ancestors as well. Well, I was going to ask, what can this genetic data be used for? I mean, is it still the basis of facial reconstruction or is that an amalgam of a multitude of things from the study of the skull and the teeth and the radiocarbon dating the bones? I mean, what goes into creating something like that? Is it purely genetic information or is there so much more that's going on when we're doing those facial reconstructions? Yeah, it's not purely genetic. And actually, the genetic basis of of how you look is turns out to be extraordinarily complicated. (laughs) Um, So it's not like you've got one gene for eye colour and another one for nose shape and another one for mouth. You know, it's it's, it's really, really complicated. And it is a conversation between lots of different genes and then your environment as well. So it's very difficult. And it's it's then probabilistic in terms of what we can say about somebody's appearance. Mm. And still, I would say, in terms of reconstructing somebody's face, the best starting point is the skull itself. If you've got a well-preserved skull, the skull is the scaffolding. It's the structure of your face. Mm. And you can then start to build up the face in a traditional way by applying muscles to it, using clay to kind of build up the the shape of the face. Or you can simply use average depths of skin and muscle and tissue thickness at various points all over your face and then reconstruct faces which are thin or slightly more plump. And you're applying that to the underlying skull. So that's still the kind of major basis of facial reconstruction. But what the genetics can then do is 
give you some probabilistic answers about things like hair colour, skin colour and eye colour. And a really good example of that is Cheddar Man. So this 10,000-year-old Mesolithic individual whose bones were found in Goff's Cave in the Cheddar Gorge, they were sequenced fairly recently and that led to an estimation of the appearance of that individual. And then my very good friends, the Kennis brothers um, in the Netherlands, the paleo artists, uh, did this amazing reconstruction of Cheddar Man's face. So based on his skull, but then using that information from the geneticists, who said, look, he, it looks as though he had very, very dark skin and dark hair and blue eyes. So hmm. a really, really unusual wow. combination of features that we don't really see today, you know, quite strikingly different looking. But that's, you know, that's amazing to be able to reconstruct somebody with um, with an idea, a good idea of their skin colour. You've mentioned a couple of times the Thousand Ancient Genomes Project from the Francis Crick. I mean, what is their mission there? What is the aim? How will it fundamentally transform our understanding of the ancient world? Their mission is very straightforward to sequence yeah. the thousand ancient genomes in Britain, right. but to provide a, a survey which stretches across time as well. So going right through from, I think they've got some Paleolithic specimens in there, but going right through from the Stone Age all the way through to much more recent eras. And really, I should say their other aim is to be led by archaeologists. So they're working very closely with archaeologists and asking the archaeologists what their research questions are and how genetics might be able to help those research questions. Mm. Some of the information they're hoping to be able to uncover. We want to know more about the Bronze Age, for instance, and this and this population turnover, because we've got the 2018 paper, which said there was a 90% population replacement. But that's a kind of very broad brushstroke idea of what happened in Britain at the moment. And it's not going to have been the same in all places mm. across Britain. You know, it's quite quite a big place. <laughs> we don't expect what was going on in the southeast to be the same as what was going on in the southwest or Wales or, you know, up by the time we get to Shetland and Orkney. So we'll get a much more detailed picture of what we already know about from these kind of broad brush studies where, where big population changes. There's a big focus on what happens in the post-Roman period. So in the 5th, 6th, 7th centuries, where everything goes a little bit murky as mm. far as the history is concerned. And there are some later historians telling us that there were hordes of Anglo-Saxons coming over and archaeologists have doubted that for quite a long time. So we don't know how profound the arrival of the so-called Anglo-Saxons was. It's potentially lots of groups from, from Northern Europe, but it may be, again, it may be just a few influential people coming over and ideas spreading. We don't really have a good handle on that at the moment. And I think we'll have a much better idea of that by the time the Thousand Ancient Genomes Project is finished. And then from individual sites, archaeologists are interested in knowing proportions of male and female, that kind of thing on their sites. And that's something as well that those genetic studies can show. Relatedness within sites too. So we're seeing some really interesting findings emerging, looking at things like, for instance, communal tombs in the Neolithic. Mm. There's been a suggestion, well, one hypothesis was that these communal tombs are almost about anonymizing the dead. The people in those tombs are, are sort of anonymous representatives of the ancestors. Whereas another idea in stark opposition to that has been that these are family tombs. These are almost like family crypts. And we are finding now from some studies that there are definite relationships between individuals buried in those tombs. There was a big survey of Irish Neolithic tombs, for instance, showing there was a, a father and a daughter buried in, in one tomb at Primrose Grange. And then I think between Primrose Grange and a, another tomb that was very close to that, just about two miles away, I think there was a father and a son. Mm. And we're seeing this pattern emerging again and again with with more teams as they're being investigated. Yeah, lots of lots of information about how how societies were constructed, how how they viewed themselves, how they viewed themselves in life and in death. Well, it seems like that's the tricky thing because the science of genetics is is more readily available. It seems like it's getting increasingly easy to uh, do this process of archaeogenetics or archaeogenomics. What is the process of going from biology to biography, as you've said there? The process of uh, taking all of this scientific data and then trying to build the story around the reasons for why uh, certain cultures may have done certain things within their their burial sites or as a community or as a society. Yeah, those are those are leaps of interpretation. I think the geneticists are not really willing to take those leaps yeah. into interpretation and, and speculation. They will provide their data to the archaeologists and then the archaeologists need to put everything together. Um, because the genetics is telling you biological facts 
about those individuals. And that's part of their biography. But there's so much more to being a human than just your sort of biological basis. And I think for most of us, it's the cultural milieu. It's the culture that surrounds us, that we're involved with, that we help create, that we that we learn from. And that's what archaeology itself focuses on. Mm. And I think the the genetic information is incredibly useful. It adds something to the interpretation, but it doesn't stand on its own two feet and it has to join in with archaeological analysis to show us the bigger picture. Uh It's not like genetics is replacing archaeology at all. It's just another tool that archaeologists can use. Well, it it sometimes feels like some of those details that are revealed, some of those are uncomfortable truths. And I know you've spoken before about the fact that we're finding out that maybe human beings engaged in incest, cannibalism, all of these things that we never assumed before may be parts of certain societies. Yeah. I mean, I think that archaeologists have never been particularly worried about uncomfortable truths <laughs> and you know genetics is is revealing yeah. examples of incest we we know that incest happens and we, we didn't ever doubt that it happened in ancient society so it's interesting to look at that from a genetic perspective mm. cannibalism is is something which we knew about already and that's not really a genetic finding that's that's more about looking at bones and pouring over scratch marks and cut yeah. marks on bones and looking at the way that bones are smashed into and eventually saying yeah okay this does look like cannibalism mm. um again there's another really good example of that from my book, which is the remains from also from Goff's cave, uh, but a little bit earlier than Cheddar Man, uh, where there's a whole pile of smashed up bones and the remains of six individuals <laughs> that have been analysed, poured over. And we seem to have incontrovertible evidence there for, for cannibalism in Somerset 12,000 years ago. <laughs> and it's a bit odd because not only is there evidence for, for cannibalism, there seems to be a ritual element to it as well. There's a zigzag incision sort of inscribed on one of the bones and then one of the skulls has been turned into what looks very much like a cup. Yeah. It's been kind of chipped. The base of it has been chipped off so that you could then turn the, the top of it upside down to form a kind of bowl or cup. Which seems very macabre to us today, <laughs> but it's fascinating to you know to look at the range of behaviours that human societies engaged in. Well, the case studies in the book, they all focus on Britain. The subtitle is The Prehistory of Britain in, in Seven Burials. And how are we finding that Britain itself is a vastly more fascinating place than we thought that maybe it was? Yeah, I think anybody, any British archaeologist kind of knows that. (laughs) The archaeology in Britain is incredibly dense. Uh People have been here for a very long time. We've got people here before the peak of the last ice age. And uh, I talk about the evidence for a burial that goes way back to about 34,000 years ago in the book, The Red Lady of Paviland. People then cleared out uh, of Britain at the peak of the last ice age. It was uninhabitable. Ice sheets came down as far as the Severn Estuary and it was tundra to the south of that. Mm. And then when people started to come back into Britain, we have hunter-gatherers coming back in, the very tail end of the Paleolithic, then Mesolithic hunter-gatherers, the the sorts of people that might have been eating each other at Cheddar Gorge and later on Cheddar Man himself. And then we have farmers arriving about 6,000 years ago, bringing their crops, bringing their livestock with them. Then you have the Bronze Age and the arrival of, of metalworking, the Iron Age, the Romans arrive. You know, it just get, it goes on and on. Yeah. It's layers and layers, layers and, layers. and layers. And in some sites, you get all those layers in one place. And I've just been filming the ninth series of Digging for Britain this year. And I've been filming all around the country with some very exciting archaeological sites and new discoveries. And one discovery, which I can reveal, which I can spill some beans, is the site of the old St Mary's Church at Stoke Mandeville and that was a fantastic example of one of these sites where the depth of archaeology was so much deeper than the archaeologists anticipated when they started digging. They knew they were excavating the remains of a ruined church which they knew went back to the Norman period. Mm. Underneath that they found archaeology dating to the earlier Anglo-Saxon period so that was very exciting to know that there was a precursor to that church in that place and that there were Anglo-Saxon dated burials as well. And then underneath that, Hmm. they found Roman archaeology. And what's astonishing about that is that 
at the very beginning, they had this question about why there was a church isolated in a field. It's not in the settlement. It's not next to the settlement. It's it's sort of off in the fields all on its own. Mm. You know, there was always speculation that that place might have been special, might have been sacred for a long time. Uh, but they still didn't expect to find <laughs> amazing Roman remains. So they found Roman funerary archaeology in the form of uh, cremations in urns and a beautiful glass jar, which may have been a cremation urn as well. And then some as- astonishing Roman sculptures, really beautiful. We don't know who they are at the moment. They might be the people who are cremated in the pots or they might be gods and goddesses. We're not sure, but they're really beautiful sculptures and very a very, very rare find in Britain. But just, you know, lovely to have that depth of archaeology mm. in, in one place, going back through Norman, Anglo-Saxon, Roman. And I jokingly said there's probably a, an Iron Age la- layer as well. <laughs> oh, in fact, there may have been a Bronze Age burial mound because certainly the, the ground has been mounded up. So maybe there was something there even before even before the Romans, which has been destroyed by later archaeology. So we can't really see it now. It does feel like, especially now and post-Brexit, we have this identity crisis over what Britain is. But is there something that British folks could learn from ancient history about the fact that we are essentially a country full of these wonderful layers? I think history and the landscape is really fascinating. I mean, I I wrote that book thinking about people engaging with their landscapes, mm. and especially actually over you know the, the years of the pandemic and through the lockdowns when I think people discovered a newfound love of the, yeah. the British countryside. And for me, walking in the countryside is very much about, you know, enjoying being outdoors, enjoying nature, enjoying wildlife, but also thinking about the heritage that is written into our landscapes and quite a lot of time looking for obvious bits of heritage in the landscape. Hmm. I love the Oxford University have done a fantastic map of all the Iron Age hill forts. You can kind of look at them all and I've got this kind of slight ambition to visit all of them (laughs) in my life and the way that people bag Munro's. I want to bag all the Iron Age hill forts, which I think are wonderful. And I do think that, you know, when you take the long view, you just see that nothing stands still. I think that's really important. We might kind of want to be socially conservative over a short time frame, but actually, um, and politically conservative, but actually it's always changed and and there've always been new people coming and new ideas as well. And those ideas have enriched our culture uh, over time. So I think, you know, when you look at, you look at the arrival of all these different cultures and different ideas in Britain, and that's what makes us today. It's always astonishing to me that it is quite literally in our backyards with Britain. My personal engagement with history as a young boy was going to our local museum and the local museum didn't have the same appeal as the Roman villas and the sorts of places, the castles that you go to. But it was always astonishing to me that Dartford Borough Museum would have this skeleton of a man who was found in Dartford, the town of Dartford of all places. And it was astonishing to me that, oh God, there's history right out there on your front porch. Do you think that's something that's very unique about British history compared to other countries, for example? No, I don't think it's unique at all, but it is right. It is important. And it's important that you can kind of engage with your local area in that way. Yep. I'm just the same as you. That's how I kind of started off yeah. with my kind of love of history. It was at the local museum. I grew up in Bristol. Yeah. It makes it much more relevant, doesn't it? If you're looking at archaeology, which is local to you, yeah. you're not just thinking of archaeology being somewhere else. You're not thinking of it just being Stonehenge, for instance, in Britain or being the pyramids, something far away and not necessarily that relevant to to you and your area. And then learning about the depth of history that's written into the landscape all around you, as you say, as you step out of the door and then thinking about all the other people who've lived in that landscape. That's why I love it. Well, you said something so wonderful, which is the idea of attending a museum is a form of ancestor worship. So what sort of relationships should we have with our museums here in Britain? Well, I think we do love our museums and we need to remember our love of our museums because they've had a tough time um, over the pandemic, obviously being shut for long periods of time and then having reduced visitor numbers. So I really hope that as we, you know, as we start to hesitate to say emerge out of the pandemic because we're still in it at the moment, but we can return to to doing these things and we can be careful and we can, you know, we can wear masks to protect each other still. We do need to remember our museums. They're wonderful institutions. They're wonderful to visit. 
it. They're wonderful as places that are inspiring to children. Both of us were interested and inspired by museums when we were younger. Mm. And then, of course, they do so much other work as well. They work they work with schools, they work with, with local communities and are constantly working on new ways of engaging more widely and more fully with those communities. And they're also repositories of yeah, amazing stuff. Yeah. And that's what's important about museums. I mean, I'm really pleased that museums seem to have gone on an interesting journey. We were sort of journey, <laughs> um, during my lifetime where uh, I think a lot of digital technology started to come in in the, in the 80s and the 90s. And perhaps some of the objects went away and yeah. we had lots of kind of touchscreens and interactive displays instead. Yeah. And now I think there's probably a return to a good balance between that new tech, but also recognising the power of the object in the museum. It's fine to to be, you know, watching a video about something or looking at an interactive display, but you really want to go to Salisbury Museum and see the Amesbury Archer laid out. You know, you want to see the bones of the Amesbury Archer and all the objects that were buried with him in the grave. The interesting thing about that, I think, is that you might go to a museum and uh, and see a human skeleton and some people might not want to do that. And I think that that's absolutely fine and it's just individual preference. But I think for me, it feels like a deeply reverential, respectful thing to do. Yeah. And it is like ancestor worship. Yeah. You know, it is us paying our respects to those ancestors that, that went before us. In the case of the Amesbury Archer, you know, four and a half thousand years before us. Where did your love, not just for museums, come from, Alice, but where did your love for archaeology come from? Because I was surprised to learn, researching for this podcast, that you originally trained as a medical doctor. You went from a nice, clean medical environment to dealing with dirt under your fingernails and dusty museums. So how did that transition happen? Yeah, medical environments aren't always uh, nice and clean. You get <laughs> other true. things under your fingernails. Anyway, yeah. no, as, uh, I should be a surgeon. So I trained as a medical doctor, as you say, mm-hmm. and I did my house jobs over in South Wales. Uh-huh. And then I was looking around for the next job and spotted this job at Bristol University, which was teaching anatomy to medical students. Right. Now, I loved anatomy. I still love anatomy. I still teach anatomy to medical students at the University of Birmingham now. But alongside that anatomy job, I knew that there was the potential to get involved with a bit of research as well. Mm -hmm. And I knew that there was a forensic anthropologist in the department and I was quite interested in forensic anthropology and archaeology as well, osteoarchaeology in particular. Mm. And so when I arrived in Bristol, I was lucky enough to meet all these people who were working in that particular area. There was a whole research group working in that area. And I started looking at old bones and becoming fascinated in them. And, you know, on the afternoons when I wasn't teaching anatomy, I would be in the basement of the old Bristol Royal Infirmary uh, looking at ancient medieval bones and laying out the skeletons and learning how to assess a skeleton and, and write a skeleton report for archaeologists. So it came, you know, I mean, it's useful to be a medic as well. It's useful to be a medic. It's useful to be a medic and an anatomist and to have a bit of knowledge of bones, but not only bones, but all the other stuff that goes around bones. So that when you see a particular prong sticking out of a bit of bone, you go, oh, well, yeah, I know what that is. That's where a particular <laughs> ligament attaches and that's oh. ossified. So it's kind of a, it felt to me like a very natural transition. Although having said that, I didn't expect to stay doing that teaching and that research. I then thought I would be going back into the world of clinical surgery. And then I ended up with a series of rolling contracts and I stayed in the job and thought, actually, I'm really enjoying this. And then started a part-time PhD looking at disease and ancient human remains. And by that time, I think once I'd embarked on the part-time PhD, I think I decided that I probably had stepped away from surgery (laughs) and become an academic. So I had this kind of brief sojourn outside of universities and then went straight back in again. Uh And of course, you're also known for your relationship with Time Team, having started in Time Team in 2001. The wonderful thing about Time Team, and it's a show that I grew up with as a kid, it was always on Sunday afternoon and Sunday evenings. It always seemed like everything they would get out of the ground would be so incredible. There was nothing ever banal about the stuff they were finding on Time Team. And you've critiqued that in some way. You've you've looked at how some burials get this wonderful ancient sacred status simply because they survived, simply because they weren't washed away or they didn't decay. So is everything that we find when it comes to archaeology, is it always so profound? Or sometimes are there just basic banalities that we come across in this archaeological process? 
There's a whole range, yeah. And um, <laughs> no, I would argue with that on Time Team, actually. I mean, there was some, there was one in particular that I remember that I was on where we thought we were going to find something to do with a Roman fort, I think, and spent three days digging and found a path, a buried path, <laughs> yeah, at yeah. which point lots of people start dressing up. So yeah, if, you're, yeah. Oh, yeah, if okay. you're watching like old reruns of Time Team and yeah, there's yeah. lots of dressing up, it's because there's not much archaeology coming out of the <laughs> <laughs> Now always secrets a revealed. Yeah. yeah, it was always a backup plan. It was such a lovely series to be involved yeah. with. And, you know, that really did, you know, set off my television career. Uh-huh. Again, something that I wasn't expecting at all. And it very much was kind of one thing led to another. But yeah, so starting as a as an expert contributor, we're actually... Even before I appeared on Time Team, I was working for them as a specialist. So I mm. was getting skeletons that they'd excavated on their sites and I was writing the reports for them. And then I was invited to actually come along on screen and talk about bones. And they obviously they obviously decided I probably could talk about bones. So they kept on inviting me back as a as an expert contributor. Yeah, it was a just lovely, lovely, lovely series, lovely, lovely people to work with, really fun and just fed back into my own research as well. So the bones that I was helping to dig up while we were filming, I would then bring back to my lab and I run whole research projects with my students on them. So yeah, it was it was fantastic. But they didn't always find yeah. profound discoveries. I suppose the thing to say is that when you're actually digging all of it's exciting hmm. because, you know, even if you're finding something very small, a bit of clay pipe, for instance, a bit of um, maybe Victorian clay pipe. And these things are not unusual. Yeah. People find them all the time, but it's you found it and you found that one. And that's a connection between you and another person in the past. And there's something profound about that, I think. So it's that kind of intimate connection in that moment between you and this other person that's long gone. So this part of history, I would be remiss to ask, is, is there a, a favourite clay pipe that you have, Alice? Is there something that you found that has this profound relationship with you and, and your history of archaeology? Well, there is a lovely one on Digging for Britain this year, actually. Oh. So do watch Digging oh, for Britain because so. there's, there's a very, <laughs> there very beautiful clay pipe that emerges. <laughs> 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 Well, I do have to ask, and I want to zoom back out to to look at this larger picture of the human species more generally, because that's the wonderful thing that Ancestors does. It it makes us realise that, as you said previously on the show, science is always evolving. Science is always changing. We're always updating our views and opinions on what we think the human being is and and could be. And, And one of those big questions is simply just how old our species is. I mean, why is that always changing? And what does that tell us about how little or I guess how much sometimes we know about the human story? Yeah, that's it's interesting, isn't it? Because you, you get these kind of headlines about new fossils being discovered or new dates coming out, yeah. looking at paleoanthropology now and looking at the kind of origins of famous sapiens. And sometimes there are big changes and then sometimes there are changes that are reported as big changes but aren't actually as, yeah. as big as they might seem. Mm. So, I mean, one of the ones which is one of the kind of amendments, I suppose, which has come along in relatively recent years um, was that the, well, going back to when I made, so I made a series for BBC Two about ancient human migrations, but also looking at the origin of the species in the first programme of that series. It was called The Incredible Human Journey. That was a while ago. So that was back in 2008. And I think it aired in 2009. And when we were making that series, the oldest modern human fossils so bones which looked as though they were very definitely Homo sapiens, modern humans, came from Ethiopia. Yeah. And so we travelled to Ethiopia and I went to the original find spot, which was amazing, where Richard Leakey had found the bones at Omo Kabish. So the fossils are named after the find spot. And they had been recently redated. So they were originally thought to be around 165,000 years old right. when Richard Leakey discovered them, which seems reasonably old, hmm. reasonably ancient. But they'd been recently redated by a team that had gone back to the original find spot and had dated layers of volcanic tuff above and below the fossils. And they'd found that the fossils were lying virtually on top of a layer of volcanic tuff, which dated to 200,000 years ago. So they argued the remains were actually almost 200,000 years old. Wow. And so that was a really interesting finding that we reported on in that series. And then a few years later, there were excavations going on in Morocco at Jebel Iroud in Morocco uh, at a site 
which had yielded previous fossils, but then yielded some more. And anthropologists were looking at these fossils and saying, well, they have some archaic features, but um, they have a very long head, for instance, but the face looks very modern. So we do think that these are examples of of modern humans, of of Homo sapiens. And the date of those is around 300,000 years ago. So you suddenly have this kind of leap where it's, you know, when you hear about it in the news, it's like, oh my God, you know, humans are 100,000 years older than we thought. But having said that, we knew that there was a likely split between us and the population that then evolved into Neanderthals Mm. going back even earlier than that. It didn't make us kind of rip everything up. It just pushed that date for... I suppose, the accumulation of, uh, of modern features back a bit, which is, you know, it's just kind of what you expect. It's not outside of what you expect. Well, interestingly, the genetic studies, they've shown some interesting relationships between Homo sapiens and Neanderthals, and, and it's fundamentally changing our perception of what a species is. So the story isn't as simple as we thought, is it? The, the, in actual fact, the relationship between Homo sapiens, Neanderthals, and all the other different types of hominids is actually very interrelated when we look at our history. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. That is really exciting, actually. And again, you know, something that we didn't know about uh, when I made that Incredible Human Journey series. Yeah. So that's, you know, going back just 13 years ago. So when we were looking at the potential idea of modern humans and Neanderthals um, having interbred with each other, which was certainly, it was an idea which yeah. was hotly debated. I came down tentatively on the side of there being no interbreeding in that series and very much kind of following what uh, the opinion of Chris Stringer at the Natural History Museum, the head of paleoanthropology at the time at the Natural History Museum. Mm. And, um, you know, having spoken to Chris about it, I thought his interpretation was quite sensible that there were a few skeletons that had been purported to be uh, hybrid individuals that, you know, had a few Neanderthal features as well as modern humans. But the problem is there, of course, that Neanderthals and modern humans have a common ancestor. Yeah. So, you know, are you just looking at somebody who's got a feature which is just a, you know, an archaic feature which is still hanging around rather than uh, a feature which has been newly introduced by mm. some interbreeding uh, with Neanderthals? And I think most paleoanthropologists thought there wasn't much evidence just looking at the anatomy, just looking at right. the bones, looking at the shape of bones and the shape of skulls, for instance. There wasn't enough evidence to say that there had been interbreeding between modern humans and Neanderthals and that the archaeology didn't necessarily suggest that there had been either. Um, although there were some archaeologists, so Zhao Zilao, Mm. He's a Spanish archaeologist, had been arguing for a long time that there are transitional cultures that we see in the archaeological record that do look like the kind of thing that you would expect if modern humans with their culture and Neanderthals with their culture had actually met and shared ideas. So that's really interesting. Anyway, um, then genetics comes along and just yep. goes, well, there you go. We've just found evidence of uh, of Neanderthal DNA in modern human genomes, yep. and and not just Neanderthal DNA. That's you know, that not just archaic DNA that's that's somehow been inherited, you know, from that common ancestor, but clear signs of introgression, clear signs of DNA arriving in the modern human genome. And the only way that DNA can arrive in a genome is by interbreeding. Mm. So then you go, well. Hang on a minute. So if there's if there's Neanderthal DNA in modern human genomes, like I, I'm 2.7% Neanderthal, that means that those interbreeding events, if we can cautiously call them yeah. that, <laughs> that those children were fertile. Yeah. Because if they'd been infertile, I wouldn't end up with any Neanderthal DNA. Oh, you'll have Neanderthal DNA in you yeah. as well, Luke. Right. So we wouldn't have it if they'd been infertile. So what we're saying is that there's been interbreeding between two different species and the hybrid offspring are still able to reproduce. Yeah. And of course, there's a, there's a kind of very basic definition of species. There are lots of definitions of what a species is, something that biologists argue about a lot. <laughs> but there's a very basic definition of a species that, that essentially you know, two species can't interbreed with each other and have fertile offspring. Right. And, we, and genetics has just blown that out of the water. I mean, we can see that very clearly. But it does make us scratch our heads and it makes us go, right, are we sure that Neanderthals are a separate species? Yeah. Are they just a subspecies? And we've got mm. two subspecies that are able to reproduce. And some geneticists would say that. Some geneticists, certainly some geneticists would say, yeah, that we're looking at two subspecies and not two completely separate species. But I think most people working in the field agree that 
they are two separate species and morphologically they're quite distinct. I mean, yeah. you don't mistake a, a Neanderthal skeleton for a human skeleton. They're, they're very, very different looking. So I think we are at that point now where we're saying, well, closely related species clearly can interbreed and have fertile offspring. There might be some issues with, with fertility, but not enough to stop children being born and not enough to stop that DNA being transmitted all the way down the generations to us in the modern day. Well, it certainly feels like this sort of work, it forces us to question the grand narratives that we have for history. We make so much assumptions about where human beings come from or where the human species comes from, and that's largely due to how science and the history of humanity is taught as children in schools. There's a very kind of clear-cut narrative there, and one of those narratives it feels like a lot of your work is beginning to question is this idea of the common ancestor. Did we all originate from the same couple at some point? Or is that just purely a misunderstanding of both the science and maybe a little bit of Judo-Christian religion stories kind of attached to that there? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because you can, because we've got this ability to decode DNA uh, and then trace back lineages through time, you can look at, for instance, mitochondrial DNA, which you inherit from your mother, mm-hmm. and you can trace it back and back and back and back and back. And um, you would get to a point in time where everybody's mitochondrial DNA comes from one woman. Yeah. And she's sometimes called mitochondrial Eve in the literature <laughs> right. as well, which again, another biblical reference that I think is actually unhelpful because uh-huh. it gives you the idea that there was just one woman yep. around 200,000 years ago when we think mitochondrial Eve existed. There weren't. There were many, many women. <laughs> she was just one among yeah. thousands of women. But it happens to be her DNA that everybody's inherited. And it's kind right. of just a statistical quirk that it's her. Yeah. Uh, and also the point in time isn't that important either. It's only, you know, it's only important for that strand of mitochondrial DNA. It doesn't really have any meaning beyond that. Uh-huh. You can do the same thing with the Y chromosome until you get back to Y chromosome Adam, who definitely was not in a couple with mitochondrial Eve. He lived yeah. at a completely different time in a completely different place, which shows you how nonsensical it is. So yeah, yeah, the human population has gone through some bottlenecks. So it's gone down to quite low numbers, mm. you know, sometimes just a few thousands of people, but it's a few thousands of people, not, it's not, you know, a couple. And that's not how evolution works, is it? You don't, you don't get whole species from just a male and a female starting a species. Yeah, but the, the the issue becomes that those stories, they become mimetic and those are the things that people think and remember when it comes to engaging with the history of our ancestors. We all have this common ancestor and that's the assumption that many folk make. So how do we help people become more scientifically engaged in their ancestry and in archaeology and genetics more generally? I think with ancestry, it's quite tricky and it is... Um the mathematics of it is really interesting. Hmm. And the book to read there is Adam Rutherford's brilliant yeah. book, A Brief History of Everyone Who Ever Lived. Uh-huh. You know, he kind of picks that apart so brilliantly and kind of shows that, you know, if you have a common ancestor with somebody else, that's great. But then you have thousands of other ancestors at the same time. Yeah. And you're just looking at one kind of lineage back through time to find that common ancestor. We're very fond of picking out the ancestors that have done fantastic things and then forgetting all the others that were quite ordinary or did bad things, actually. Mm. But you don't have to go back very far until you until your ancestors are in the thousands. If you consider that they double up at each generation, you've only got to go back to, you know, 10 generations till you've got over a thousand ancestors because mm. you've got two parents, four grandparents, eight Great grandparents, 16 great, great, you know, just very quickly, those numbers, it's exponential. So very quickly, those numbers expand. So I think when you're just tracing one line back, you've just got to remember that there are lots and lots and lots of other lines within your family tree. So, so Alice, why do you believe that it's important that we learn from our ancestors and how do we apply that knowledge to the way in which we live today? I think there's a number of things. I think that it's a little bit like that idea that travel broadens your mind (laughs) and that exposing yourself to other societies, other cultures, other ways of being human is a good thing. Uh, I think it makes you into a better, more tolerant person. It makes you look at yourself in a different way. Uh And you can do that traveling through time in the same way that we can do it geographically today. So I think that idea of time travel is is really fascinating. And it does kind of bring us then back to look at our own culture and, and perhaps, you know, look at it and think, well, 
you know, what are the things which are good about this culture and what, what are the things which are perhaps not so good about this culture, having had that comparison with the past? Mm. And then start to think about the future and think, well, what do we want our future societies to look like? So I think there is always a kind of a two-way mirror, isn't it? You're kind of looking back into the past, but you're also thinking about the present, but also projecting that into the future as well. And, uh-huh. and I think it just frees us up from thinking that the way we do things now, it's not the right way of doing things. It's just a way of doing things. Could we be doing things better? Yeah. You know, there are some lessons to be learned from the past. There are some things that happened in the past that we definitely don't want to do again. <laughs> <laughs> and then there are just brilliant stories. I mean, I yeah. just, I love, I love um, this intersection between archaeology and genetics. When I was writing Ancestors, it felt very archaeological to me. It felt like I was digging up amazing stories to put in that book. So it's not a novel. It's not coming out of my head. These are stories that exist out there. And my job is to go and dig them up and then uh-huh. present them to you. Well, this is the the Futures podcast. And, and you mentioned there that how this can help us imagine and, and think about the future. And, and I guess my question then is, how far do you think ancient genetics can actually go? What else might we be able to find out as biological science progresses into the future? I think we're finding that we can extract and sequence DNA from really, really old remains and old Mm. remains that we hadn't anticipated that we might be able to get DNA out of, even remains that are, you know, hundreds of thousands of years old. So it was phenomenal when Neanderthal, ancient Neanderthal DNA was sequenced and that was 60,000 years old. But we've got other DNA from fossil horses, for instance, which is hundreds and hundreds of thousands of years old. You know, so I think... That will push back, but I do think it will get to a point where Hmm. that will be finite. We won't be pushing it back millions and millions of years. So unfortunately, I don't think we're ever going to get dinosaur DNA. I think that's gone and that's a real shame, isn't it? I would love there to be a possibility of actually getting dinosaur DNA, but no. I've got lots of DNA from various Pleistocene mammals, especially the ones that get frozen into the permafrost. Say mammoth DNA, for instance, we've got a good idea about now. But unless we find a dinosaur that's been frozen for 66 million years, then I think dinosaurs are out as far as genetics is concerned. So I think there is a, you know, we will get to a point where you literally just come up against a brick wall because... There is no DNA there and therefore you can't tell, you can't tell any more about it. But in terms of what else you might be able to tell, I think we'll get better at linking up between genotype and phenotype. In other words, the code and the anatomy and physiology of an individual. So, you know, the things that we can tentatively say about appearance at the moment, I think we might get a bit better at doing that, although it will always be probabilistic because it's a conversation between all the genes and environmental factors as well. So I think we can expect more of that. So it's really as we learn more about our own genetics, so that we know what DNA is doing in living bodies, that will help us to interpret ancient DNA as well. Well, on those exciting notes, Alice Roberts, I want to thank you for being a guest on the Futures podcast. Thank you very much for having me. I've enjoyed looking into the past and thinking about the future. Thank you to Alice for showing us how archaeogenomics is helping us to uncover new knowledge about our ancient ancestors. You can find out more by purchasing her new book, Ancestors, A Prehistory of Britain in Seven Burials, available now. If you like what you've heard, then you can subscribe for our latest episode. Or follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Futures Podcast. More episodes, transcripts, and show notes can be found at futurespodcast.net. Thank you for listening to the Futures Podcast. Podcast.